everyone, my name is Sylvia Garajek and this is Valley Talks. Today I'm very happy to welcome Emily Baum, CEO of Curios, a first luxury wearable tech that unlocks extraordinary experiences. Hello Emily, it's so nice to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. Jewelry and tech, that sounds pretty incredible and exciting. Yeah. Tell us more about this. So the idea for Curious came about when I was um, at a point in my life, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I happened into this fantastic jewelry store and saw a case full of necklaces in the shape of keys. And I thought out loud, uh, okay, those are beautiful, but what if it worked? What if inside the box with the key necklace, there was an address or a latitude and longitude and whoever was giving it had hidden something somewhere in the world for that person to find. Um, and the person I was with at the time said, oh my gosh, yes. And we started brainstorming like crazy about it. And so this idea that something beautiful could be the catalyst for a bigger experience and some surprise or discovery down the road was something we both thought was really exciting and interesting. And it was the beginning of me starting the journey to found the company. And what does Curious do right now? So we, it's, it's fairly similar. So uh -huh. we've, we've started out, we make luxury goods that unlock surprise experiences. We've started with a line of necklaces um, in the shape of an antique key. Each key is uniquely identifiable and unlocks a surprise hidden somewhere in the world. And so what that surprise is depends on who's giving it to you and what they want to surprise you with. So it's in the shape of a key mm -hmm. exactly to kind of unlock mm -hmm. the experience. Yeah. And are you planning any other shapes as well? Yeah, so the key is just where we're starting. Okay. We actually already have a watch and cufflinks in the works as well, which are not at all in the shape of a key. Um, but this idea, right, we're introducing it to the world. It's new and different. And right now, when we see advertisements for jewelry, they tell us that, like, they sell us the idea of this. Um, we wanted to make it really clear, no, this actually is the key that's taking you somewhere. But in the future, we definitely plan to um, elaborate, and it'll be... Um, more of a surprise. You won't necessarily know that this beautiful object is going to take you somewhere. How does it actually unlock the experience? Tell us about the process, how it works, what does it do? Yeah, so from a, how it works, it really is super simple. The necklace itself is inserted into a hidden box. It turned like a normal key, but unlike a normal key, it's not just working mechanically. The box that it's opening is very, very smart, recognizes it, and the screen inside then shows you exactly what's meant to be surprising you. By buying the key, they buy the concierge service. Yeah. And the subscription that goes with it. Yeah, so the, the question I get a lot is, okay, this is jewelry, is this a jewelry company, is this a technology company, or is this an experience company? And I love it because <laughs> my answer is yes. Um, we're all three. And so, yes, you're getting a beautiful piece of jewelry. You know that it is technology. It's going to unlock a surprise somewhere in the world for you. And the beauty of using technology is that we can program things all over the world to recognize your key. Um, and so the possibilities of what you, you can be led to are really endless. Um, and where the experience comes in is we work with whoever is trying to surprise you and we help them create it in the way that makes sense for you. Usually that involves writing clues that are meaningful to you, planting them in places that are meaningful to you, um, and leading you to a surprise that would be super exciting specifically to you. You launched this product just a couple months ago. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind. So I bet it's really exciting time right now, mm -hmm. getting customers. And you mentioned earlier that you didn't even spend much much money on marketing because it's pretty much yeah, word of enough. mouth. Yeah, totally. Um, 
you know, when you hear, when you, I, I, so I talk to people about this all the time. I think you've talked to founders and you know that basically when you're building a startup, it's everything, mm -hmm. right? You don't really know how many hours a week you're working because everything that you're doing is related somehow. Um, and so I talk to a lot of people. I think I actually did an estimation and it was around like 6,500 people that I've already talked to about this. And usually the response is, oh my God, I need that. Can you help me? My insert milestone anniversary or birthday is coming up and I would love to utilize this. Or it's, um, can you tell my husband? Or uh, can, could you tell my boyfriend? Like they really need to know about this. And so the, the like urge to share or to say like, oh, so-and-so, you gotta know about this. Your wife or your girlfriend or your best friend would love it. Um, when it's taking something that's already wonderful, like fine jewelry is how we show one another we care right now. Um, but when we're taking that and elevating it from just being this beautiful object and having it become this experience that's once in a lifetime or hopefully continues to give you joy over and over again, like it's something that's exciting to talk about. So yeah, people, they, they tell everyone it's great. Um, I want to ask you more questions about your business. How are you actually, actually running it right now, about mm -hmm. raising money? But let's just uh, circle back a little bit to the previous years. How did you actually, before you were doing this, yeah. you know, what were you doing and where did you leave? Yeah, so I, um, I studied neuroscience and musical theater in undergrad in Los Angeles. And I knew at the end of that that I did not want to be getting a PhD. I had spent enough time in a lab to know that I love it, I respect it, but it wasn't my passion and that I needed to figure out what that was. Um, and I also knew I loved New York and I wanted to live there. So I just picked up and moved to New York and I had a month's worth of rent to find a place to live and a job. Um, that my, my parents cut me off after graduation, that was all I got. And so I got there and I had earned enough in my summer job to like support myself for that one month. Um, applied like crazy to every job and got one um, in pharmaceutical sales. So I was selling drugs, okay. like my line I used at the bars <laughs> in New York. Um, what do you do selling drugs? Anyone who gets really excited about the fact that you sell drugs for a living, it's, it's a tell. Um, but anyway, so I worked in pharma for five years. I kept the learning curve going, so I was consistently getting promoted and it got interesting again. And a few years in, I got to this point where I realized I had moved here knowing I didn't know what I wanted to do, knowing I wanted to figure it out. And I had taken the first job I'd gotten and continued to you know, progress at it. And I never really took the time to figure out what I wanted to be doing. And that hit me pretty hard. And I, I am someone who like, when I realize something, I try to figure out how to take action on it and solve it, right? Like that's a very common thing. I'm sure you've, you feel it too. Um, and so I started researching every career I thought I might wanna be and I started talking to people in every field um, and learning not just what the career sounds like on the surface, but like what's the day-to-day, -day? what's under the hood, um, what are you actually spending your time doing? And so that was the mentality that I was in when I was in this jewelry store looking at this keys, having this epiphany. Um, and so as soon as we started brainstorming about, oh my gosh, this could be so amazing, there's all this potential, um, I started looking under, like, what does that look like under the hood? What's the day-to-day -day of doing that yeah. work look like? And I realized, like, that's a lot of work, but I think I want to do it. And maybe neuroscience and musical theater isn't the strongest foundation for a startup founder. I should probably learn a bit more about business if I'm going to start one to give myself the best chance of success. 
And so I started researching business schools. I started studying for the GMAT. I became a little bit of a hermit. Um, and a year later, I started at Northwestern. So I, I went straight to business school with the purpose of this is the thing that I want to do. I know that I want to make this my life and I want to bring this to life. Um, and this is how I'm going to do it. And so that's what the intention I went into business school with. That's the intention I left business school with. Um, and I spent really the first year of business school figuring out how to be a business school student. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Kellogg. It's a really incredible university, but it is hard. I mean, we're very social, but you are working twice as hard as you are socializing. So it, it's difficult. And so mm -hmm. the first year I spent figuring out how to be a business school student. The second year, I spent using every class to progress the business and research. And then it came time to graduate, and it was, do I go back to New York? Um, do I stay in Chicago? Or do I move to startup Mecca in Silicon Valley um, and give this thing a shot? And I, knew, I had a whole network in New York, and I knew two people here. Mm -hmm. um, but I was looking at what's the best place to get this thing off the ground, right? Um, that's how I thought about it the entire time. Like, what can I do to give this the highest likelihood of success? Um, business school was my first way of doing that, and moving to San Francisco was my second. Um, and so I moved out here and immediately started going to every networking event that had founder in the title, um, which was, you know, there are a lot here, because it's just the scene. Yeah. So how, how long ago was it? When did you move here? I moved here in um, October of 2013. Okay, and yeah. what were the beginnings? You hardly knew anyone here. Was it tough or was it pretty easy for you to, you know, blend into the um, society? I, so I think San Francisco is one of the easiest places to move and meet people. I think there is a culture here of, oh, what are you working on? How can I help you? Who can I introduce you to? How can I help make this happen because there are people who came here or have been here building things and then they succeed and then they go back into how can I help other people do that. And so I found being here that it was the easiest place. And I've lived in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and here. Um, and this is by far the easiest place I found to like set up roots and get started doing something because the culture here is how can I help you move something forward. Before you moved here, you knew New, you knew New York very well. Mm -hmm. And what were you thinking about the startup scene over there? Because it's like, they say it's a second startup scene. Yeah. Um, so this could get controversial. I, you know, Chicago was also trying to build itself as, as like the startup city. And I think both New York and Chicago are doing a really good job of cultivating mm -hmm. the community and growing it. Um, you can cultivate and grow it, but you're like San Francisco's had a really, really long head start. Um, and I think there are industries where each is maybe stronger than, than San Francisco is, but like collectively, the likelihood that the people I'm waiting in line here at like a Starbucks or insert whatever coffee shop mm -hmm. you prefer are gonna be excited or interesting or have started a company before, like the likelihood's pretty high here. In New York, it's probably also maybe a baker or a lawyer or a doctor. Or like, it could be anybody. San Francisco is tech. Like, San Francisco is founders. Like, I am not really special being a founder here. People are like, oh, okay, great, you're a founder, so is everybody. Which is funny on one hand, but like super helpful when it comes to 
the network that's here. You landed here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And what about the team? Were you a solo founder at that point? Yeah. Um, how did you start to build your team? So I showed up. I started going to all of these like founder networking events. And um, you know when you're exhausted, you're really tired, and you're like, oh, I was going to go to that thing, but I don't know. And you force yourself to, and then you meet someone incredible. That was the beginning of building my team. So I had showed up to the last half an hour of a networking event for founders. I had met someone who I had nothing in common with. Um, he was a former Apple software engineer who was really into like big data and B2B SaaS cloud insert buzzword. Um, and we really didn't have anything directly in common. And as soon as I started to scan the room and see like, okay, who else here should I be talking to? In a very thick French accent, he said, ah, but maybe you should talk to my brother. Um, okay. And she, I was like, who's your brother? Tell me more. And he pulls out his phone and he shows me his brother's portfolio. And I just started nodding. I was like, uh, yes, yes, I should talk to your brother. Your brother's he was, phenomenal. He is a designer. His brother is based in the center of France. He's done work for some luxury companies that I can't entirely disclose, but companies like Cartier, um, Van Cleef, you name it. He is in like the heart of luxury, and he's incredible. And he wants to change the status quo. He's someone who wanted to take something beautiful and turn it into something more. Um, so I, if I had only talked to people that I thought I had something in common with, like I never would have found my first Employee. From my experience, what I know is that the events that you almost didn't show up at, yeah. or you felt like this is yeah. the least helpful for you, you end up meeting someone really amazing and it changes the whole thing. Exactly that. Like the ones where you're like, oh, I don't know, and then you make yourself go. Sometimes those are the ones where you're like, I can't imagine my life if I didn't show up here. Exactly. What would that have been like? So the designer you're working with, he is still in France. Yep. Okay, so you're working remotely. So we've worked remotely this whole time. Have you ever met? I mean, we Skype, so we video chat okay. because of the language barrier. It's much easier to make sure you're communicating clearly if you're seeing one another. Um, I mean, I've met his like kids and his wife via Skype. I would love to go there and meet them. Um, I mean, beyond being an incredible designer, he's just a phenomenal human being. He's very funny. We joke. Um, and his kids, like, he'll send me sketches, like a new sketch for... The, the box and, you know, in the file with those will be one that his son did. Um, and it's just, I mean, I think we've, over the years, kind of developed this sense of, of community. We, we understand each other, which is great. At the point when you, when you needed to hire him, you did not have any investment yet in the Correct. company, right? Yeah. So how did you convince him to work with you? Um, when you have a business, that other people believe in, they will do a lot. Um, I think the best asset that I've had is that what we're building people believe in. And this idea that something beautiful can lead to something magical in this experience, um, people who love that sort of thing really love it and they, they get excited and they want to be a part of it. And so we've, we've found some incredible people who are working with us because they're the kind of dreamer they see what's possible and they're excited about building that out. Um, but the other thing is being someone, hopefully, who people enjoy working for, right? So being somewhat formal, keeping meetings, being very respectful of other people's time, I think they're sort of um, baseline, how do you work well with other people? And if you 
are respectful and um, you know someone that people enjoy working with, I think that goes a really long way too. And so what would you advise to other founders when they are in the same situation? They may want to, they may have, they may be lucky enough to find other people that are excited about their business, but still you need to have some arrangements with them. Yeah. So I, this is where I think business school. So one of the things you learn about compensation is that what's important to me and what's important to you and like what compensation I would think makes me feel like my time is valued and what compensation you think makes you feel like your time is valued could be incredibly different things. So if I come to the table and I say, hey, great, we've got this package, this is what you're going to get, um, that's not a great conversation. But if I show up and I say, it's very important to me that the people on our team feel valued in the way that is meaningful to them and feel compensated in a way that's meaningful to them, like, can you help me understand what are you looking for? And then that's where we start the conversation. So some people really value equity. Some people couldn't care less about equity. They're totally in need of cash right now, right? So it really, really depends. Some people are like, I don't need anything now. I think this is going to be huge, but I want, a, I want a delayed payment and I want it to be at the market rate. So I know that you're a startup and that you can't afford me right now, but I believe that this is going to happen. Um, so like, we'll do the work now and you'll pay me whenever the money comes along. Um, it's it's a, it's totally different. So what matters to each person um, is what is important to me to find out. And I think I've been really consistent about making sure that people know that. Let's talk about raising money. Okay. You've raised some angel investment. Mm -hmm. um, how did you find the first investors? The first investment was me taking my 401k from my old job and just applying it, you know, mm -hmm. boldly to what I was doing. And um, using that was how I got the first teammates, how I started moving everything forward. And we got to a point where we had enough money left to uh, either make a video about the idea, mm -hmm. um, sort of selling the idea of it, and hopefully using that video to draw people to a website to prove demand to then go raise money. Um, but we also had people asking to buy it. So we could spend the money making it and delivering it to those people. And we didn't have enough money to do both. And so. I was at a networking event, um, actually an alumni event for my business school, and somebody that I had met when I had first moved to San Francisco, I think it was the second event that I went to after the first one that I told mm -hmm. you about. Um, and we had met there, and we, were, we had met a few times in between. She asked how things were going, and I said, um, I said, well, they're amazing and they're awful all at the same time. And she was like, what, did you take a job and like it's distracting you from the business? And I was like, no, I probably should, but like I can't even imagine doing that. Um, and I explained to her this conundrum that we had like people asking to buy this thing um, and only enough money to either make it or sell the idea, mm -hmm. make a video. And she was like, well, how much do you need? And of course I totally underestimated it. And she goes, let's talk, call me next week. Mm. Um, and so we had a meeting, we ran through numbers. She was like, the number that you're estimating is not going to get you anywhere. This is what you really need. She wrote a check and that was the beginning of that. Um, wow. Yeah. So I think part of it is, you know, do you have a great deck? Do you have all these things that people talk about? Part of it is who are you? Who are you talking to? And are you being honest about your situation? If I had gone into her and said like, oh yeah, everything's great. You know, people are loving it. Like, and tried to put on some face about how wonderful the world was. Like she wouldn't have known I needed help. She wouldn't have known she could help. Um, and we wouldn't have had our first investment. 
So it was that honesty that was the beginning of that mm -hmm. first relationship. And what about next investments? Are you raising money at the moment? Are you planning to do it sometime in the future? Yeah. Because you're selling your products already. How do you yeah, plan Yeah, so this? I think raising money is interesting. No one really like teaches you how to do it. It's kind of difficult. Yeah. That's why I'm asking all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. hard. Uh, so we have had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. I think um, I wish that there was like some masterclass that said like every person you ever meet, like put something on the calendar with them like two or three months down the road on one day or two days and then decide that that's when you're raising money. And it's just this like process that you have to do. There is this need for comparison within investors. Um, they look for the deal that's hot. They look for the thing that everyone is talking about. And so if you're talking to people three, four, eight weeks apart, like they're not gonna get the impression that something mm -hmm. is hot. So there's this interesting like game element and like design to how you have those conversations that I definitely learned a lot about. We've done a really good job of meeting people. So I um, was teaching for the Citrix Startup Accelerator. I met a lot of investors and advisors through doing that. I've been helping with Lean Startup Machine here in the city. So like giving back to other startups has helped me connect with the broader network so that now when we decide like this is what we're doing, um, it, it changes it. So I don't have to spend three weeks trying to get an introduction to someone that I might want to talk to. Um, I think those introductions, that's why they say you should always be fundraising because if there's someone you want to meet and you want to talk to, it's going to take a while to get those introductions. Um, so always do it. Uh, but fundraising is very distracting from actually building and running a business. And so you have to be strategic about your time. It's not easy. I don't know that I or anyone else really has it perfectly down. What's one of the lessons that you would share with our audience or mistakes that you've done and you know that you're not going to do it again? Yeah, um, so one of them, and I think it does come down to, to meeting people, is realize that you're never too early. I think when I had first moved here and I was just starting to talk to people and they were starting to help because they thought what we were doing was cool, I was getting offered introductions to people and I was like, oh, but I'm not ready to talk to them yet, I don't have a deck that I like feel good putting out into the world to represent us, or I don't have X or I don't have Y. And I think that that, you know, idea that you're too early is a crutch. One of them was Team Draper. Yeah. Um, so I finagled my way into a meeting with Heidi Roizen, who I think is one of like the, my idols in, in business. Um, all women in business, if you don't know who Heidi is, like look her up, she's incredible, she has a lot to teach you. Um, and I was sitting down with Heidi and she was saying, I love what you're doing, um, this is incredible, I wanna help you. And she was offering to introduce me to people and one of them was Tim Draper. And I had never written an email that was forwarded on as an introduction before. Like this was not something they've done. I mean, I have three degrees, I know how to do a lot of things, but like a simple, like, hey, you should fund me in an email version that's exciting and interesting that someone can just pass on I'd never written before. Um, and so it took me a really long time to write it and I think I probably missed some of that opportunity because it took me so long. And so, like, get out of your own way. No one expects you to be perfect, mm -hmm. um, but you're never too early. Just take the opportunities as they come. I guess that would be the, the lesson that I would share. We all feel like it's too early. That's just the truth of it. If you're prepared, you've waited too long. I mean, people say, if you're not embarrassed by the first product you're putting out into the world, then you're launching too late. And mm -hmm. I think that's true um, with you know fundraising or talking to people or anything where you're like, oh, this is too early. I think 
if we really look at that, generally it's a crutch that we're nervous about doing something or we don't know how, and so we're avoiding it. As a female founder, um, have you been active in, in women in tech community in San Francisco? I, I know that you were uh, running a panel on one of the conferences. Yeah, so for, um, for a year I was one of the managing directors of Girls in Tech Silicon Valley, so SF, SV. Um, and so I ran monthly networking events for women in technology and did as much as we could to bring the, the community together. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that was uh, speaking on panels and at conferences and trying to really get the conversation started. So yeah, I am deeply um, passionate about helping it be more welcoming for women in tech and creating a community where we, we have support. Why do you think there is much less uh, women um, than men as founders? Uh, I think resources is a really huge part of it. Uh, there's a statistic somewhere that women build companies with like one fourteenth of the capital that men do. Yeah, but do you think that as many women were actually um, asking for this capital? Because, you know, I think that also probably just portion of number of men was that women actually asked for it and then it ends up being so small. Yeah, I... I mean, I feel like that argument is sort of similar to the pipeline question in STEM. And I don't think it's that women aren't here. The number of female founders that I know who are incredible, who are passionate, who are making progress, who are still having a really, really, really hard time finding money is high. Um, and there are not a lot of cases of women where I'm like, like, where they have like some like, oh, this is, you know, Uber for popsicles. And like someone gives them $30 million. And like, I feel like we hear those stories all the time with men. Um, and that's great, like good for them. Uber Proposables could like maybe be this huge thing, but wouldn't it be great if that like blind belief that someone could make something happen also was was supporting women getting getting into it? And I think that's that's what it comes down to is that women in general are not like investors are trained to pattern match, right? Mm -hmm. They look for patterns and they find them and they identify them, and that's often how people invest. Um, but women aren't going to fit into that pattern because we aren't the norm right now. Mm -hmm. And so if you're constantly looking for something familiar or that matches a pattern that you've seen before, uh, you're going to miss out on a lot of things. And it's likely that those will be women because they're different. Uh, I've been an outlier most of my life, like neuroscience, musical theater, an MBA, and a master's in engineering. It's not like a common profile. Right? But I think that that's one of the things that makes me great. It's a struggle if the people who are, who are there with the capital are looking for something that's going to fit into a mold. I'm never going to fit into that mold. The only mold I'm going to fit into is like the wacky one that is me. What is your plan for Curious for 2016? Um, so right now we are thrilled to be helping our first customers reveal surprises. Um, so we are iterating on the concierge service. We're learning how to make it more efficient and better for our customers, and, and we're taking their feedback. Um, but we're also starting to talk with larger companies about installing these hidden compartments all over the world. So our goal is to partner with hotels and um, some concierge companies, some airline lounges, places all over the world that you might not even think of. Um, so that, that, you know, the bookcase that's actually a doorway that has something hidden there that there are more of those kind of surprise moments all over the world. So we are starting conversations with um, some really large property companies mm -hmm. talking about plans that we can partner with them to hide these, these hidden spaces. 
There is so much to do. Mm -hmm. Emily, it was such a pleasure having you on yes, the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, tell me, where can we find Curious online and more information um, about you this? You can find it at www.curious.com. So it's K-E-Y-R-I-O-U-S, like a key in curiosity. Um, you'll find everything there. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me.